1: Power
0: in the precious... Incredible as they seem are not the results of massive. heriot. You may wish to adjust the dial you are currently tuned into the wrong station. let's see what we've got here. Witness reports in the Morris case and the events leading up to. Alright. October 1st. Neighbors awake to find that the home of Edgar Morris has been decorated with fake cobwebs. Some comment that it seems a bit early for Halloween, though beyond that nobody seems to think much of it. October 2nd. Morris is seen tearing these cobwebs off of his house. He appears to be annoyed and somewhat confused. October 3rd. The day passes without event. October 4th. The front of the house is once again covered in cobwebs, presumably placed there overnight. Morris is seen leaving for work in the morning, noticeably frustrated, and spends a part of the evening removing them again. October 5th. The webs are there again, considerably more than the first two times. October the 6th and 7th. Morris spends the weekend cleaning the home exterior. He is seen using a broom, a shop vacuum, and at one point requires the use of garden shears. On Saturday evening, Morris is witnessed having a verbal altercation with Vincent Grubenau, who lives four houses down. He insists that Grubina's two sons are responsible for placing the webs and warns that they. best not do so again. Hmm. Yeah. Delaney. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Oh, yeah, it's weird stuff.
2: Edmund stared up at the trash bag-covered windows on the upper story of the haunted house. He chewed his lip. Edmund did not particularly enjoy haunted houses. They always fell into one of two categories, either a psychotic blood-soaked death house or a kid-friendly peeled grapes equals witch's eyes house, an artificial experience like biting into a wax apple. So, When Yellow Flyers advertising a perfect haunted house experience had started to appear on telephone poles in his neighborhood, he barely registered them. It wasn't until one of his friends jokingly suggested that Edmund called and asked for a job that he began to look closer. After all, the poster had said help needed in small font beneath the poorly worded list of promises, including fright scares, dead pustules, and impossible blood? Whatever that meant. No one at the listed phone number picked up, but his text message received an immediate reply. Just an address and the tolerable remuneration he'd receive for his services as a ticket taker. The job was ordinary, nothing untoward, nothing even unusual. In fact, when he arrived, the only thing that surprised him was how brightly they'd painted the ticket booth. It was only now, after several hours of punching inky stamps and tearing little yellow tickets, that he'd started to become suspicious. At first blush, the house radiated an almost aggressive normalcy. It had two stories with an attic encased in white aluminum siding, the lot was largish, but not unusually so for this neighborhood, and the yard was dominated by manicured ryegrass and an old sugar maple. The Halloween touches were similarly uninspired. Twenty paper ghosts lined the concrete walkway, and a straw stuffed shirt and pants crowned by a werewolf mask sat on a rocking chair lit dimly by a string of orange LED pumpkins. It was the kind of terror you could buy for 20 bucks at a Halloween superstore, and yet something was undeniably wrong. For even Edmund's stultified brain now registered that not one of the visitors had exited the house. Not the three tipsy plaid-wearing men, not the group of daring preteens, not the two women who stood outside for five minutes finishing their cigarettes before they eventually entered not the twenty other guests he collected tickets from. Edmund had circled the grounds, but found the back exit barred over with pieces of rotted wood that somehow refused to budge no matter how hard he pulled at them. The only way in and out of the house was through the front door, and Edmund certainly wasn't going in through there. Instead, he looped back around to his station and resolved to not take any more tickets until the end of his shift. He needn't have bothered. No one else approached his carnival-colored booth, At midnight, Edmund was closing the lockbox and preparing to depart when he heard the sound of a door closing and footsteps. He wheeled around. Exiting the haunted house was a woman. She looked to be in her early thirties, wearing jeans, a light plaid jacket, and a cheap, childish headband adorned with devil horns. Edmund stared. He was certain he'd never seen this woman before in his life. "'Pretty cool haunted house,' said the woman as she walked towards Edmund." When he didn't answer, she spoke again. The house. It was pretty cool. Edmund licked his dry lips and asked, Did you see anyone else inside? Nah, she said. I guess I was the last one to go in. No, no, said Edmund, shaking his head a little too wildly. I never took a ticket from you. The woman rooted through her bag and pulled out a little yellow stub. She handed it to Edmund, who noted she also had the same stamp on her wrist that he'd been giving out all night. Edmund stared into the woman's eyes. There was no treachery there, just mild bewilderment directed at him. "'You okay, man?' she asked, fidgeting with a lighter she'd taken out from her pocket. "'Or wait, is this part of the house, weird ticket-taker guy to give you one last freak-out when you leave?' Edmund's eyes darted back to the house. It just sat there, staring outward with its blind, black eyes, saying nothing. Offering nothing. The woman was also looking at the house. Her brow furrowed. She opened her mouth to speak, but nothing came out. Instead, she began to walk away. Edmund called after her. What happened in there? She stopped. Edmund called again. What did you see? The woman shouted something over her shoulder, but whatever she said was drowned out by the crinkling of paper ghosts in the wind.
1: Little Jack Carville, a tow-headed boy, loved to give people a fright. So as you might guess of the days of the year, his favorite was Halloween night. They all fought him harmless, a mischievous scamp, as he'd sneak up behind and yell, Boo! But as the years passed and his deeds became darker, their fear began to be true. No more ghosts made of sheets, no more werewolf gloves, no more spiders placed on the shoulder. He traded plastic rats for baseball bats as he grew more mean and bolder. And then one year he thought to himself, they're all having too much fun. This time I'll make sure that on All Hallows' Eve I'll be the only one. So with a grin on his face and clothing all dark, he took hold of his trusty bat and ran up and down the streets of the town, smashing each jack-o'-lantern with a splat. The children cried, the parents scoffed as he played his cruel little game. For they realized now crushed pumpkin on the ground. The holiday would never be the same. Nearing the end of his vicious task, young Jack was at the city's edge. When he spotted it there, one last lantern to break, past a gate and a hedge. But standing before it, he came to a pause. For this was no mere gourd. For with its grotesque face of the pumpkin race, this one was surely lord. ''If I wear this, they'll scream,'' Jack said to himself. ''I'll fill them with terrible dread.'' And with that thought, he grabbed it at once and placed it on his head. But his glee was short-lived, and his smile was gone, as he felt a horrible pain. It felt as though stingers from somewhere unseen began to pierce his brain. He screamed something awful as his head-flesh warped, and he tried to pull it free. But in trying, he found, there was no prying it off, and never would there be. His screaming stopped, for pumpkins don't scream, and that's what his head was now. A face most frightful, twisted with sorrow, stuck on that orange brow. And with those holes where his eyes had once been... He didn't notice them there. Three more young boys, as mean as he was, also out tonight to scare. They tripped poor Jack, and he tumbled down. They laughed as though it were jest. Only one pumpkin left, one said with a shriek. That toe-headed Jack smashed the rest. They took up sticks and brought them down upon that orange meat and Carville's brain, waxy skin, and seeds spilled out on the street. And one last time, those who looked on scoffed as they played their cruel little game, for they realized now, crushed pumpkin on the ground, the holiday would never be the same.
0: All right, where where was I now? Yeah, October the 8th to the 12th. Morris departs Monday morning for a work trip. By every account, the house appears from the outside to remain unchanged during this time. October the 13th. Morris returns in the morning to find that the entire house is covered in webbing. He's described as furious. He enters his home, exiting five minutes later. He is no longer furious, just deeply concerned. October the 14th. An exterminator makes a call to Morris's home. Their truck remains in the driveway for five hours as they work inside, while Morris once again cleans the exterior. October the 15th to the 17th. No visible changes. Neighbors report that Morris appears more visibly relieved with each passing day. On the evening of the 17th, he is witnessed apologizing to Grubinagh outside of his home. October the 18th. Early this morning, Morris runs out of his house in screaming hysterics. He has a heated phone conversation with the exterminator in the middle of the street. Neighbors report that he spends that evening in a local motel. October the 19th. The house is covered in webs. October the 20th and the 21st. The house is fumigated over the weekend. October the 22nd. Professional cleaners arrive and they clean the entire home, interior and exterior. Throughout the day, they are seen removing 64 filled garbage bags from the house. October the 23rd. Morris returns home. Yeah. Yeah, Delaney, I'm still looking at it. Yeah, I'll get back to you soon.
3: Some rites made sense in Caius's experience. Others didn't. A few days from now would be the festival of Armalustrium, the ceremonial purification of weapons. And that made sense. October was the traditional end of the campaign season though Rome now fought its enemies year-round. So it made sense for the Legion's spears and swords to be ritually cleansed and set aside. It made sense to build religious significance around the act. One could imagine how the rite had come to be, and why. But the rite that took place today, among the drift of dry leaves and the clay-cold wind, was the rite of the October Horse, and it did not make sense. Just down the street from where he stood, jostled by the men of his neighborhood, the crowds parted. The tuba and tympanum droned and pounded against the gray rumble of an October sky. This was a rite of Mars, the war god, and his twelve clerics, the leaping priests, led the procession in their spiked helmets and red cloaks. The priests, by law, were young and strong, and they might have felt a joy in the act of leaping. But if they did, they did not show it. Their faces were grim. Each young man carried an ancient shield in his arms. Eleven of these were fakes, copies of the shield that had fallen from heaven in the reign of Numa Pompilius, centuries before the fall of the Republic, centuries even before its rise. Twelve dull metal bosses reflected the October sky. Which shield was sacred and which one secular, nobody still remembered. Yet, The rite of the October Horse must have been older even than these shields, for any reason behind it had vanished on the autumn wind of time. There was something barbaric about it, like the blood-soaked harvest rituals of the Gauls and Scythians. It took place outside the Pomerium, that ritual border of the city, that ritual line that separated sense from savagery and order from chaos. Behind the leaping priests was led a white horse, its mane the color of lightning against the dark sky, its flanks dark with sweat like storm clouds, its eyes wild. In the center of the street, grooms brought it to a halt, and the music reached a pitch, and the animal tried to buck and scream, but the rope that bound the bit between its teeth was held by strong men. Caius wanted to look away, but he knew that this rite represented on some level, in some significant yet senseless way, a metaphor for virility that it did not feel safe to deny, surrounded as he was by so many men. The High Priest of Mars appeared, capped and clad in crimson, bearing a spear in both hands, and anticipation passed through the crowd like a shiver through one body. Slowly, with a look of savage bliss, the priest drove forward with the spear point, raising a well of blood from the shrieking horse's chest. And then after a delicious pause, puncturing its heart, driving the stallion to its knees. A flicker of, what, pleasure, release, passed through the crowd as the animal died. A symbolic penetration, yes, but to what end? A living animal was dead. Its meat would be used for nothing. It struck Caius as a waste. And yet this was the right. Wide-bladed axes flashed in the street. The head and tail of the horse were hacked from its body, and a fast runner leapt down the avenue with a tail in his hand to sprinkle blood over the sacred flames of Vesta at the city's heart. The head, though, was the source of the animal's virile energies and would be fought over by the crowd. The men of one neighborhood would win it. The others would be emasculated. As the priests drew aside, a roar lifted from each side of the street and the two halves of the crowd surged together, kicking, shoving, biting. Caius was carried along with them, unable to move pinned arms as his body was pummeled. In front of him, somebody's head snapped back, smashing into his face. The world went white for a moment, white as the pelt of a white horse, and then a space opened in the crowd just as he lost his footing and fell to his hands and knees among the crumbling fallen oak tree leaves. The crowd closed over him like a falling oak. A hobnailed sandal crushed his hand. Somebody else fell across him, driving him to his belly. Panic surged in his chest. He was being trampled. He could not stand up. Under the stifling weight of the scrum, he could not draw breath. Something was staring at him through the forest of legs and sandals, as more bodies collapsed over him and a stray kick bloodied his gasping lips. The severed head of a white horse trampled itself such that the skin hung loose and twin tear streaks of harvest sunset crimson sputtered from its popped eyes. What was the point, thought Caius, as his legs screamed for air and his ribs were compressed by the weight of struggling flesh and bone. What was the point of any of this? And then something curious happened. As Caius's vision began to go dark, he thought he saw the dead horse smile, and he thought he heard its whispered words. For its own sake, Caius. For its own
4: sake. Well, to my old eyes, this Halloween thing is very secular. When I was growing up, the traditions had a little more religion to them, a little more moral fiber, if you ask me. We didn't call it trick or treating, we called it souling. You'd go out on All Souls Eve, which, for those of you who maybe haven't been to church in a little while, is the evening of All Saints' Day, which is the day after All Hallows' Eve. There weren't any tricks. You'd go around door to door saying prayers for the souls of the lost loved ones of every house. It was actually a very nice tradition instead of these disgusting candies children love to gorge themselves on these days, you'd get a small round cake with raisins on it. Called a soul cake. Or just a soul. The best soul cakes in my village were baked by Mrs. Sutton, who was head of the Church Women's Association. She and her husband lived in a nice big house in a part of town called Pottersfield, which, she always liked to remind us, had been a bad part of town until the Suttons moved in and cleaned it up around the turn of the last century. There was something in Mrs. Sutton's cakes that made them different. Cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, everybody used those. But Mrs. Sutton had a special ingredient. We girls would always try and guess what it was. Cardamom, we'd say. Saffron. But Mrs. Sutton would just wink at us and say, Nice try, girls. But it's a Sutton family secret. The Suttons were very wealthy. One of their ancestors had been Archbishop of Canterbury. Maybe it was just some expensive spice none of us had ever heard of. The year I was thirteen, I decided to find out. I staked out the Sutton house, and like one of the Kaiser's spies, I followed Mrs. Sutton to the grocery store and kept track of what she bought cinnamon, ginger, cloves. That was it! She didn't even use nutmeg! What then was her secret? Defeated and dejected, I decided to walk the long way home across the potter's field. Night was beginning to fall, and as I paused, turning back to watch the sunset, I noticed a curious thing. There was Mrs. Sutton, out in the potter's field, digging. With a shovel, no less. You must understand, manual labor was a very peculiar thing for a woman of Mrs. Sutton's station to do. So I ducked down behind a line of hedges and crept closer to see what she was doing. She was digging up bits of something and tossing them into what looked like a magnificent brass bucket decorated with crosses and miter hats. The bucket had a lid, which was off, and a hand crank along one side. When the bucket was full, she put the lid on it and carried it into the house. I simply had to find out what it was. Some kind of savory root, like ginger? "'A delectable fungus, like a truffle.' "'I leapt forward, but when I reached into the hole, "'I had quite a shock. "'My fingers took hold of something, "'and when I removed them from the hole, "'I found I was shaking hands with the arm of a skeleton. "'I fainted dead away. and must have let it a shriek, for when I came to, "'I was seated in a chair in Mrs. Sutton's kitchen, "'with a cool cloth on my forehead and a hot mug of tea next to me. "'Goodness,' Mrs. Sutton said, "'you gave us quite a shock.' "'that brass bucket was on the table. "'And as she cranked its arm, "'a terrible crunching rose from within. "'You must think me quite ghoulish,' said Mrs. Sutton. "'But you see, the ground out back is a potter's field, "'a place where they used to bury people "'who simply couldn't go into consecrated ground. "'You know the type, dearie. "'Indigents, suicides, papists.' "'She shuddered at the last thought. "'So you see, my darling, "'these aren't Christian bodies.' so there's really nothing wrong with it. As you can imagine, this was a tremendous relief to me, and Mrs. Sutton and I had a good laugh about the whole thing. Afterward, when the other girls and I sat eating our cakes after a long night of souling, they all crowded around to ask if I'd found the secret ingredient. I winked at them. It's a Sutton family secret, I told them, and took a great big bite.
0: All right, back to this. October the 24th, nothing of note occurs. October the 25th, nothing of note occurs. October the 26th, the 27th, and the 28th, nothing especially of note occurs. Morris is seen sporadically throughout this time. Those who care to observe note that he doesn't seem to have shaved or slept in some time. October the 30th and the 31st, nothing of note occurs. Morris is not seen. November the 1st. Police enter Morris's home after he's reported as missing at work for several days. They discover his body encased entirely in webbing. After uncovering him, coroners determine that his eyes and internal organs have been removed. Acid burns and trace remains found within the body cavity suggest that they were at least partially liquefied. Oh wow. Oh, wait, hold on. I missed a day there. October the 29th. Two young men that match a description of Vincent Grubenau's sons are seen entering the home of Morris late in the evening. The boys are reported as carrying a box filled with decorative cobwebs, a bottle of chemical solution, a hydraulic suction pump, and a large metal straw that appeared to narrow into a sharpened point. They leave with the bottle the pump, and the straw after several hours inside. (laughs) Oh, those kids. At it again. Delaney? Yeah? No, no foul play. Just a little Halloween prank is all. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash the station. This week's episode, Something Snippet This Way Comes, was written by Anthony Botello, Alexander Saxton, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, and featured in order of appearance, Anthony Botello, Joey Graff, Rachel Hart, Alexander Saxton, and Chelsea Jane Bray. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte-Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at therwrongstation at gmail.com. We wish you a most spooky, splendiferous, and sickeningly opulent Halloween. And until next time, thank you for listening.